I repeatedly recall that the founder of this Zen center said that the job of a Zen priest is to encourage people to practice Zazen. I would be glad to do that. And um, earlier this morning, you were sitting here. Maybe you were practicing Zazen. And um, so I thought maybe I, it's kind of unnecessary for there to be a Dharma talk because you're already practicing Zazen. which is very good, thank you. But then I thought, uh, since there's, there's a, the schedule says there's gonna be a Dharma talk, and maybe there would be a problem if we didn't have a Dharma talk, so I came and started talking. But please excuse me for any words that I might say that would not encourage you to practice Zazen. Even if I sit quietly for the rest of my life, still some people might not understand that I'm encouraging Zazen, so maybe I talk to point out that when I'm sitting quietly, that's the point of it, <laughs> to encourage people to practice Zazen, from which all blessings flow. I've been telling stories this week. I mean, one could see it that way. And um, so now I tell you the story that when I was listening to Suzuki Roshi uh, talk about the teacher celestial dragon raising one finger, as he was telling that story, I. Um, I thought, oh, he's a storyteller. I mean, he could be seen as a storyteller. And I was surprised that, I, that he was a storyteller, that he seemed to be a storyteller, and I was surprised I hadn't thought of him that way before. I never thought, oh, Suzuki Roshi's a storyteller. I never thought that before, but then I thought it. He actually did tell quite a few stories. And now that I think of it, Shakyamuni Buddha told stories too. And the great ancestor Dogen told stories too. And as soon as they tell the story, it pretty much immediately becomes a family story, which then future generations might tell too, because since our ancestors told us told the stories, maybe it'd be good if we told them too, because telling and retelling these stories over and over 
might actually, as I suggested recently, be an essential ingredient in um, maintaining the life of the family of perfect wisdom practitioners. Does that make sense? So, some people call me a storyteller and I think, ooh, I guess that's all right. Zen priest storyteller who tells stories about our family and our family includes Zen priests and Zen lay people. Um, So it turns out that because I've been practicing for a while, I'm full of stories because I've been hearing them and reading them and telling them and retelling them. And because I retell them, I can remember them, some of them. If you listen to them and retell them, then you might be able to remember them too, and then you could be a Zen storyteller. And you could help take care of the family tradition to the next generation. And I I have this feeling like some people think, that's not my job, that's Reb's job, he can do that. I don't want to learn all those Chinese names and all those Japanese names and all those Korean names. (laughs) Okay, fine. I'm happy to learn them. And some people even complain when I tell the stories and say all those those names. So I try to translate them into English to make it a little easier. Sorry if it's frustrating. I heard a call, uh, a cry about how hard it is to practice outside the monastery. (coughs) And also in the monastery, I hear cries of how hard it is to practice in the monastery. People who are outside the monastery are not usually crying about how hard it is to practice in the monastery. (laughs) But I told you, the first story I told you about was Suzukura. She said, today we don't have much time for Dogsan. And then he talked about people who are having painful legs and sleepy and confused monkey minds. I think those people were in a monastery that he was talking about. They were having a hard time practicing zazen in the monastery. So, okay. so people in the monastery have a hard time practicing zazen, but still, it's a great place to practice zazen. People outside the monastery have a hard time practicing zazen, but still, it's a great place to practice zazen. And maybe it's even harder outside than inside. I hear that. So then, could you say something to encourage zazen when you're not in the monastery? I'm happy to. So here I go. This might not encourage Zazen, but this is my intention, that this will encourage the practice of Zazen. Could you move that way a little bit, Greg, so I can see that woman? Thank you. Also, lean your head that way a little bit. She didn't mean to cause you any problem, and neither do I. 
but you did sit right in front of her. <laughs> anyway, so here's a story. And, and you might say, and this is a, it's a story. It's a story about a movie I saw, which some of you may have seen too. The name of the movie is, is Paul gone? Too bad, Paul, you probably would. When I talked about this town that, I, that you could help me remember the name of, he really laughed at that, and he's not here to help me. Anyway, the name of the movie is Groundhog Day. How many people have not seen Groundhog Day? One, two, three. Anyway, what? Yeah. So, uh, Groundhog Day is a is a day in February or March. February. In February, and uh, it's celebrated. the 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 essential the the central celebration spot is in Pennsylvania in a town called. What? Potsitani? Punsitani? Punsitani? Pots. Pox. Like Pox Romana? P U N X. Pennsylvania. So yeah, there's a movie about the celebration of Groundhog Day, and it's quite popular among. Students of Zazen. And other people too, but it's very popular among them. And uh, one of the central uh, repetitive themes of the movie is waking up at about six in the morning, right? With an alarm clock. And I just want to mention that it's over and over and over. Re repetition. This is a, so it looks like the, the, the man who's in the motel room, it doesn't look like he's in a monastery. But because of this repetition of getting up in the morning over and over, it starts to look like a monastery. This noise, this sound going off to get him up, to wake him up. But when I saw that, I didn't think, oh, that's like a monastery. I'm, but now that I'm reviewing with you, that's a, a, the repetition is one of the qualities of monastic life, is a repetition. So another m central theme of the, of the story is that this reporter, I guess, was reporting on Groundhog Day for a TV pro station. He meets another reporter, I think, a female reporter, who is really very lovely. And it seems like she is, what's the word? She has integrity. She doesn't seem to be like uh, a conniving, deceitful person. She doesn't seem like she's trying to get things from other people. Particularly, she doesn't seem like she's trying to get people into her bed. 
so she can have fun. But the, uh, the, 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 the male reporter seems like he wants to get her in his bed and have fun with her, which he imagines, with some justification, might be the case. Just being near this person is kind of fun. She's a very, very lovely person, just hanging out with her. But he's not satisfied with that. He wants to hang out with her, maybe in some way, other than they're hanging out in the restaurant. Somehow he, she's willing to go and have a meal with him in a restaurant. And, uh, and he likes that, but he wants more than that. Even though, he's got, even though he gets to have uh, dinner with a movie star, a beautiful uh, TV personality, he wants more. He's kind of greedy, it seems. And um, when she sees that he's greedy, she kind of loses interest in him. And says, you know, I, I, you know enough of you, uh, greedy man. You know, I kind of feel, you know, like he's kind of disrespectful of her. He's like, this isn't good enough. I want to get more from you. And she senses that, and she feels like, if you can't appreciate me the way I am in the restaurant, you know, bye-bye. That's my, just, what's just a story about their first date. Then he goes to sleep, and he wakes up the next morning, and it's the same day, and he goes, and goes through similar things as he did yesterday, but he kind of sees that it's kind of a repeat of what happened the day before, and he kind of can see things before they happen. So he, he, and he has dinner with her again. And then as they're having dinner, he kind of stumbles upon the fact that he already knows what they talked about and things she told him about herself, which he wasn't really interested in because he just wanted to get something from her. But he did sort of go through the motions and learn a little bit about her. So then he tells her things about himself, which really were, he learned were about her. And she's touched that they have this rapport. <laughs> you know, like she told him the night before, maybe one of her favorite books are, or something like that. And he said, while they're having dinner, he says, you know, I was just reading my favorite book the other day. And she goes, oh, what was it? And he tells her, he said, oh, that's my favorite book too. And she's kind of warmed by that, you know, which he appreciates because he's getting her ready <laughs> for the kill. <laughs> and, uh, and, then when she, and then he moves in for the kill. And when she sees it, she, she says, oh, you're not interested in me. You just want to get this stuff, whatever it is that you think you're going to get. Bye-bye. And every night, because he, he learns more about her the previous day, he tells her more stuff about himself, which is about herself. And she feels closer and closer to him and opens up to him more and more. And, every, and the more she opens up to him, of course, the more attractive she is, and he goes for it again. But also, the more finally, she's, as she really starts to open up to him, and then she violates that intimacy, then she starts slapping him. Because this is like, 
wait a minute. I just opened to you a lot, and now you're still trying to grab me it disrespectfully? This is, she doesn't slap him right away. I don't think she slaps him right away. Maybe she does, but anyway. She starts slapping him. This is like really obnoxious, really violent of him to be attacking this person who has opened her body and mind to him. And she's, but she's got integrity. She won't like say, oh, well, I guess since I opened to you, you get to take you know, whatever you want. No way, man. Whack. And then there's a whole series of, of, whole series of repetitions where they don't go through it because we, we know the routine. They're just like, I don't know how many there are, 10, 20? All there is is like, you just see her whack, 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 whack. And that's when I thought, this, they're in a monastery. So <laughs> she... She, she said, good night, the first night, see you later, man, you're not, you're missed, you're off. He didn't get it. She did it again, he didn't get it. She did it again, he didn't get it. She did it again, he didn't get it. And then whack, 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 but not one whack, 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 <laughs> whack, 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 whack. I don't know how many there were. Some, if, you, if any of you are watching, count them and tell me. Most, most people have to be whacked repeatedly in order to give up everything. And just be with, be together, you know. We have to, most of us, we kind of know we should give up everything in order to be good friends. We know that. We ha we've heard you have to give up everything to practice us, and we heard that. But most people need to be whacked more than once. And it doesn't have to and, you know, I personally would be happy for that woman to whack me many times, but, she, but I wouldn't, she wouldn't want me to whack her. Because I'm bigger than her, or anyway, more muscular. And uh, so the, type of the, the form of the whack is not necessarily a slap in the face, but for some people it's just the right thing. And he, and he got whacked enough so that he finally gave up everything but being her friend. Of course he wanted to be her friend. But he wanted to get something too. And she wanted to be his friend. But she was the teacher. She was the master. And she was saying, respect this relationship and don't try to get anything from it. It's here, I'm giving it to you. But if you try to get something, you're just going to get whacked. Because it shows you don't respect me and you don't, you don't respect what I'm giving you. And he finally got it. And when, he, and when she opened to him, he didn't try to get anything. He just enjoyed that intimacy. And then the training was over. No, he didn't need to be slapped anymore. So in your life outside the monastery, you probably need something like that. Some kind of repetitive slap. And what kind of a repetitive slap can there be when you don't live in a place where they ring the bells for you every morning, 
and where they make it cold every morning, you know, or whatever, and do it over and over and you feel, and until you stop trying to get something. When you're outside the monastery, you probably, the same pattern probably needs to occur, like this guy. He wasn't in a monastery, but her integrity kept saying, stop, give up everything and practice with me. Be my friend, give up everything and be my friend. Give up everything and be my friend. Be my friend and don't try to get anything. Somehow we need that, whether we're in a monastery or not. And what can that be in your life? Again, friendship comes in here because, in fact, you do get slapped quite frequently. Not by the same person necessarily, in the same way, but there's various slaps that happen to you when you're in the monastery and outside of the monastery. The monastery, the slaps are sometimes ritualized. And you go in a special room to get slapped <laughs> by a certain person in a certain way. It's a ritual slapping. In the city, you get slapped by the weather, by grumpy people, by, you know, taxis not stopping for you, by people being greedy, by people butting in front of you, by people asking something difficult of you. You get lots of slaps. And I don't know what he would have done after the first slap if the day hadn't been repeated. He might have said, that's enough of that chick. I'm not going to try her again. She slaps me every night. But he didn't, you know, it was, he, it was repeated. So the practice of friendship is the way to make the repetition. So you keep getting slapped, but you realize you're welcoming it. All this stuff that's happening in the streets, this difficult stuff, if you're practicing friendship, you say, I welcome these slaps. These are my, mon these are my monastic supports. These difficulties are, are whacking me and reminding me, are you trying to get anything? When you went to work today, were you trying to get to work? Or were you just going to work as an act of friendship? And if people stop you on the way, you might be able to uh, be stopped and say, you know, I'm late for work. May I go? And they say, no, you can't go. I need you. You do? OK. I'll be late for work if you do. But usually they say, it's OK. See you later. When I was coming, when I was coming here, I'm walking down Garfield Place. And from about 50 feet away, a man says, Tension Roshi! <laughs> and bows to me in his shorts. And it's one of my anjas from like 25 years ago at Tassajara. <laughs> his name is Mark Salmon. So he lives right nearby here. And he says, and I go, Mark! And he says, this is magic. And I said, can you come to the retreat with me? And he says, 
no, I gotta take care of my son, he's right down the street. So I meet his son and we say goodbye. But, you know, it wasn't exactly a slap, but it was kind of a slap. And, and I, I said, you know, I wasn't gonna stop and have a bagel with him. I put my arm around him and said, come on with me. And he said, I can't, I gotta go with my boy. So I went over to his boy and I let him go. And he let me go. That woman who kept slapping him was committed to practice friendship with people she knew. And if people try to cut corners on friendship, after she, I mean, like I say, she didn't slap everybody on the street that was trying to get something from her. But when she spends some time for somebody and gives them a lot of her love and generosity, and then they still try to get more, then she slaps them. So that's a story about how to make the city a place where you get trained. It's pretty simple. It, it's pretty simple. It's just hard. How can you say thank you very much to everything that comes to you? To all those slaps and painful things that come to you, how can you say thank you? And if you can say thank you, it's not a slap. But sometimes when you first feel the slap, you you might think, well, I didn't ask for that. That wasn't friendly. You're disoriented from friendship at that point. Now, I, another story, which I, I think I can tell it briefly. No, it's too long. Huh? What? Not too long. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it's, from a, it's from a novel. And the name of the novel is The, is the Kite Runner. And again, the central, the central event of that, for me, of that novel is two boys who love each other very much. And um, one of the boys gets in a situation where a gang of boys start try to rape him and succeed in, in uh, sexually abusing him in the streets. And the other boy sees it and does nothing. And the, the way it's portrayed, I felt like this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. I thought this is like unbelievably horrible. That, because that other boy loves me so much and I let people abuse him. I, not even from a distance do I say, leave him alone. Not to mention, run up there to protect my best friend. He didn't do it. This boy would have certainly given his life for him and he wouldn't even risk anything to protect him. We are complicated people, and maybe we also hate our best friend because our best friend, we think, loves us more than we love them, etc. blah, blah. But anyway, it's terrible. And he thought it was terrible, too. So like teen there may, maybe young teenagers when this is happening, 
and he suffers for years and years and years of the karmic consequences of this horrible betrayal of love. He's yearning, he's asking for somebody to slap him. And nobody, nobody knows what he did. And his friend just keeps being loving to him. Deepening his uh, misery at not seeing how he's going to become free of this. And they grow up. They all grow up. The, the abusers grow up. The abused grow up. And the betrayer grows up into adult males. And this takes place in Afghanistan. And when their adulthood, it's at the time when the Taliban was uh, in charge after the Russians got kicked out. And sure enough, the leader of the boys who sexually abused his friend becomes a big uh, wheel in the Taliban. And uh, the betrayer like this the, the, the abuser is really a bad boy. He did terrible things. But in a way what what the narrator did was worse because he betrayed love. Anyway, they, they, they meet again, and the, the leader of the Taliban basically arrests him and starts torturing him, and basically beating him to death. And while he's being beaten to death, at a certain point, just before he's gone, he starts laughing because he sees that this is what he's been yearning for his whole life, is to be beaten to death. And he starts laughing at how ironic it is that this is what he's been asking for. And when he starts laughing, when he realizes that this is, what he's, this is the friendship he was needing, he was unfriendly. He was unfriendly to his best friend, so what is, he needs another kind of friendship to relate to his betrayal of friendship, and this is the form of it. And he sees it, and he starts laughing. And of course, once he sees that this is what he's been asking for, and now he's getting it, even though it's maybe kill him, of course, he's immediately released. The guy stops beating him because he can't figure out why he's laughing, and various other amazing things happen, and he gets away. That story comes to mind. And someone says, well, that means we should let people beat us up. No, I'm not saying you should let people beat you up, necessarily, unless they're beating you up. <laughs> but if they're beating you up, I would say, yes, let them beat you up. But not just let them beat you up. Welcome it. Say, thank you, friend. And then, after you welcome it and say thank you, or say thank you and welcome it, then everybody will be liberated, and they'll stop beating you up because the friendship performs miracles. And there's you know, many Zen stories about that, right? You know all the Zen stories about that, don't you? Where the teacher's being beaten, and the teacher says, welcome, and that's the end of the beating. 
right? Do you want one? Do you need any, you need any of those? It's not that the teacher lets them do it, it's that you know, allows it, and the teacher welcomes it. And in the welcoming, enlightenment occurs. In this one finger, there's welcoming. The enlightenment is not sought outside the practice. What's the practice? Welcoming whatever comes. Welcoming whatever comes. The practice is to welcome whatever comes. That's one meaning of the finger. The other one is don't look for the enlightenment outside the practice of welcoming. It isn't like you welcome and then the enlightenment is going to come. If, you, if you're welcoming and then waiting for the enlightenment to come, that's not the one finger, that's like two. Welcoming and enlightenment. If I welcome, I'll be enlightened. If I welcome this harassment, I'll be free of it. No. The welcoming is the freedom. A lot of people get slapped. Not too many realize that welcoming the slap as it's happening is enlightenment. And once you're enlightened, you can say, may I slap you now? <laughs> or, could we have a break? Or, I have something better for you to do. I mean, I know I see you're, I see you're enjoying slapping me, but I have a more interesting thing to do. You, we have more interesting projects than that available. Do you understand? Don't seek for enlightenment outside the practice of welcoming whatever comes. And he, the greedy news, newscaster or whatever, he had to be slapped. Every time he got slapped, he probably thought, this is not enlightenment. This is not, this, I'm not getting what I wanted, and I'm getting something I didn't want. I don't think it bothered him so much he got slapped. I just, I don't, I think what bothered him was, she's done with him. He blew it. He wasn't welcoming those slaps, and so enlightenment was not there. He thought, it, he thought happiness was something other than getting slapped, right? He thought enlightenment and happiness were, was to doing something special with this lady. Finally, he realized that getting slapped and welcoming it, that welcoming that slap, finally he welcomed the slap. Finally he said, thank you. I was off. I betrayed our friendship. Thank you. And then the next time, I guess, I don't remember the story exactly, the next time she didn't slap him because he finally said thank you to the slap and he was enlightened. We have to walk around this world welcoming whatever happens. And of course, we sometimes say, I welcomed, but I didn't mean it. I couldn't do it. OK. Well, then I think the way I'm practicing is one thing, and complete perfect enlightenment is another. 
complete freedom and happiness is not what I'm doing. And because I cannot welcome what's happening. And if I can, then I have to be then doubly careful when I feel like finally I'm welcoming to not think that I'm, I'm going to get something out of that. When you welcome, you don't have any space for like getting some, some reward for welcoming. I was having dinner, I think maybe it was New Year's Eve, a few years ago in Manhattan with Greg and Laura and Diane at a restaurant. And um, I, was holding a, I was holding a wine glass, and I did something with the wine glass relative to my mouth, and Diane said something like, don't do that. She gave me some instruction about the proper relationship of the lips to the wine glass, which I, which I heard from her. It was a little slap. <laughs> but did I welcome it? If I welcomed it, that's the practice. And at that moment, I didn't have to look. If I welcomed it, I don't have to look someplace else for zazen. If I don't, then I confess and repent. And, uh, but I'm, I don't necessarily do the same thing with my lips on the wine glass that I did before, just so I get another slap. But I'm more ready to see what the next slap will be. I do get slapped. You do get slapped. But do I say welcome and mean it with my whole heart? There's lots of opportunities outside the monastery to do that. There, it's very simple, but very difficult a lot of times. Not always. It's not always difficult. Sometimes, like, Sometimes it's repeated, and the first time you didn't get it, but the second time you're ready, and you can do it. And, and, then, and then after that, you do it over and over, and you already learned it. Once you learn it on a particular type of slap, once you learn how to welcome a certain type of slap, you can often do it re repetitively. But then when new kind of slaps, or pokes, or gouges, or pinches come, then oftentimes you're kind of like shocked, disoriented, and what was the practice again? And then even if you remember, I don't want to do it. It's too hard. This is too painful. And if I feel that way, I can say, well, OK. I accept that. This is too advanced. I cannot say welcome. But I don't change my mind about the practices, even though that happens. A few years ago, quite a few years ago now, my grandson's 14, and when he was about two, Actually, maybe he was one. No. Anyway, he was pretty young. And, it, and the day before his birthday party, I had an operation to repair a herniated abdomen. abdomen. <laughs> and, uh, 
And then when I came out of the operation, I was recovering from the anesthetic, <clears throat> and a nurse came into the room and she said, uh, we're letting the anesthetic wear off, and, and as it wears off, you'll probably start feeling some pain, but we want to let the pain come so then we can give you some pain medication to see if the pain medication works. They didn't want me to leave you know, before the pain came. So I, 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 was, I think I was lying down and waiting for the pain to come. And I felt the pain come. Here, here it was coming. And it was coming from the bowels of the earth. It was a big one. I could feel it coming. It wasn't very big yet, but I could tell that I was dealing with the tip, the peak of a mountain. Somehow the, the shape of it felt like, this is, some, this is something big is coming. <laughs> and then kept coming and getting bigger. And I could kind of tell by the, by the landscape that it was, there's a lot more where that was coming from. And this is what I agreed to do. But I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I was going to scream out, you know, I wasn't yet ready to say, nurse, I think you can come back now. I wasn't quite that, maybe I was kind of proud. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I wasn't at the level of, well, if I really need help, I can scream. I wasn't that far. I was more at the level of, actually, can I relax with and can I welcome what's coming? and just deal with it on my own before they come and give me the pain medication. And I, it was kind of going along, and, but I, I, I was getting to the point where, hmm, this is okay, but, and then this is okay, but, and then I started, I started to feel like I'm getting a little tense. And, I, kind of, and I, I felt like, if I'm already starting to get a little tense, I probably wouldn't really have a hard time being tense if it all came on. So I, I feel like, you know, my patient's practice is not that bad, but it, it has room to grow. <laughs> because I don't know if I actually could relax if the full thing came. It never did the full thing come. She came back in eventually before it came. And, but I say, like, I was already having trouble welcoming it before the whole thing came. So I am not mean to myself when I feel like I reached the limits of my welcoming capacity. I, I aspire to have a welcoming of anything. That's what I aspire to. And when that's that, then we have a Buddha. I aspire to a Buddha that no matter what comes, the Buddha, no matter, the Buddha is the result of a long time of aspiring to welcome anything. Everything, everybody. But today, I can welcome these people, but not that person. I can welcome this pain, but that one's, I think maybe it's too much for me. And so she gave me the pain medication, and I ate it, and I was relaxed. 
And the next day I got up in the morning and there was no pain. It was amazing. But that first day I took the pain medication and I wasn't trying to like, I wasn't, actually I didn't think, well maybe I'll just see what it's like without it. Just let it come all the way. I didn't feel like, well, I didn't want to do that. I kind of felt like probably it's too much for me. So you, we have these opportunities in daily life in the city. We have challenges. We have our cares and woes. And we have a simple practice, the first bodhisattva practice. For those bodhisattvas aspire to Buddhahood, and the first practice is welcoming these slaps, which it's harder than the monastery because they're not ritualized, and they don't happen you know, in certain rooms and so on. They, kept it, they catch you off guard. You know? So it's, it's harder. Okay? Like, okay, I know tomorrow morning, at 3 in the morning, they're going to they're gonna ring a bell and I'm going to get up in the cold. Okay, it's going to be hard. Okay. <laughs> but if you're just you know, walking down the street and suddenly you're thrown into 3 in the morning and in the cold, it's like, whoa. Why do I, I didn't ask for this. Again, the New Yorker magazine cartoons. I didn't ask for this. All these, I didn't ask for this. It's seeing how silly that is, that we didn't ask for this. So this is basically how to practice outside the monastery, I would suggest. Okay? Welcoming whatever comes is also listen to whatever comes the way Avalokiteshvara listens. Welcome doesn't mean welcome and fix it. It means welcome and then see what's up. And, you know, it's like that. We don't know what to do after that. Now, I have a, a monastic story to tell. But what time is it? Is, is it 11.33? 11 what? 16. 16? Oh. So this is a story, a monastic story, about what a monk did when he got kicked out of the monastery. So this monk was traveling with a friend, and to make, the li- to make life simple for you, I'm just going to tell you the name of this monk. I'm not going to tell you the name of his friend. This, and I'm not going to tell you his whole name. I'm going to tell you a, a, a simplified version of his name, which is just the first part. His name is Fushan. Fushan. And Fushan and his friend, when they were still training, before they were Zen masters, they both became Zen masters, they finished their training. Before, while they were still training, they, they traveled to visit a famous Zen master whose name was Gui Shun, to be distinguished from the great Gui Shang. Shun, Shan. Shan's mountain. They went to visit Gui Shun. Gui Shun was characterized as cold and severe. 
and frugal and something else. And the, and the monks all over China loved him and traveled great distances to be with him. They sensed some, they sensed Zazen, I think. They sensed great f good friendship in this cold, severe person, that he was a good friend. They were happy to practice with him, even though it was really hard. So these people, these people traveled a long way to be with him, and they arrived on a, on a snowy night. But in this case, they didn't go to the monastery to get out of the cold. They went to the monastery to study with this severe, cold friend, good friend. And I, I think in, uh, in, like today, there's like an area that you come to the monastery where newcomers come and sit. It's called the newcomer's room. And uh, so the teacher came out and saw them and threw cold water on them <laughs> and said, get out. And uh, they just got up and shook, shook the water off and sat down again. And he says, if you don't leave, I'm going to beat you up. And uh, Fushan's friend said, we traveled a thousand miles to be with you, Master. You think spilling some water on us is going to drive us away? Even if you beat us to death, we will not leave. <laughs> I'm laughing now. And that's what Guishun did. He laughed. He said, you guys need to study Zen. <laughs> okay, hang your stuff up. You can practice here. This is a kind of friendship. And he then appointed Fushan to be the head cook for the monastery. And he served. However, uh, for one reason or another, because of the Fushan's frugal nature, the meals were nothing like what you have here. <laughs> they weren't so tasty and nutritious. And what I just said might be a slap, but it's really in friendship that I appreciate the wonderful food here, but Guishan's monastery did not have food like this. And so Fushan, uh, one day, noticed that the teacher was leaving the monastery. And while he was gone, he, got, he found the key to the storage room, and he went in and got out some uh, additional food that would make the food, the meals, better. Basically, it was to add some wheat to the, to the gruel. And um, so he, without, he, he took that food without talking to the teacher out of his <coughs> sense of friendship to his fellow monks. 
But he didn't do it out of friendship with his teacher. He was avoiding his teacher's friendship. I haven't finished the story, but I just wanted to mention that I told this story quite a long time ago, and some people got really angry at me for telling it, and really angry at the whole story. So, may I continue? <laughs> so then, uh, Guishen comes back. They're still in the monastery. Life is simple. <laughs> Guishen comes back before the meal's over and partakes. Of course, the food tastes very strange to him. <laughs> very tasty. What's going on here? Hmm. I think my, I think my boy has stolen some food and put it in this dish. So then he calls the tenzo and said, "Did you steal food from the storage room and add it to this food?" And Fusan said, "Yes, teacher. Please discipline me. I implore you to discipline me. <coughs> I did steal that, that wheat." I took your, I stole your key, and I stole it, and used it without your permission, and, and took that rice. Please discipline me. And teacher said, calculate how much that food cost, and um, then sell your robes and bowls to pay for it. And then he, and then he beat him and drove him out of the monastery. And now he's out of the monastery, like us. Okay. And uh, and he and when he moves to the town near the monastery, and when the monks come out of the town for various purposes, he sees his friends and he says, "Please ask the teacher to forgive me. He disciplined me, but I, I want him to forgive me and let me come back and practice. I, I wanted him to discipline me, but I didn't want to kick." get kicked out of the monastery. I want to come back. Please let, ask him to forgive me and let me come back. And even if he won't let me move back, at least ask him if I can come into his room to talk to him about, about Zazen. But the teacher would refuse. He wouldn't let him come to live there again. He wouldn't even let him come and talk to him. One day, the teacher went to town, and he saw Fushan uh, standing in front of a rooming house, which the monastery owned. And he said, do you pay rent here? And Fushan said, well, no, I haven't been paying rent. He said, calculate how much rent you owe and pay for it. And with no complaining, With no resentment, he did what the teacher said. And he went through town begging for money, and he paid back the monastery. And then uh, another day, the teacher was walking down to the town, and he saw, he saw Pushan begging. And he went back to the monastery, and he said to the other monks, that monk has conviction in practicing the way. 
And then, after some time, he, he was invited to return to the monastery, and this is the monk that became his successor. He did not, he, he slipped up, he did not practice friendship with the teacher. He did not say thank you to the teacher. He did not welcome the teacher. And then he said, discipline me, and the teacher did discipline him. And he gradually learned to welcome everything the teacher gave him. And he became Fushan. When I, somehow there was something about that story from the first time I read it to the second time I read it to the third time I read it, it always deeply moved me. How severe the teacher was and how the student was always able to welcome it after a while. And what a great master he became. And then sometime after that I found out something else. I found out that in the history of Soto Zen in China, there came a time when there was only one teacher of Soto Zen in all of China. And his name was, uh, in our lineage chart, it's Taiyo Kyogen Daiyosho. In Chinese, Dayang. A great teacher. Everybody thought he was a great teacher. But sometimes great teachers have a problem. And their problem is they have trouble finding a successor who can take care of their teaching. But anyway, he finally did find a successor. And his successor died before he did and before his successor had a successor. So now he was, after he did all this <laughs> Wonderful friendship to make, a to make a successor, the successor dies. And now he's really old. And it's, you know, it's a lot of work to make a, a successor. <laughs> Just like Guishan, it was a lot of work to kick that guy out and go to town and you know, track him down and say, did you pay for that and you should calculate. That was hard for the teacher. He loves to do it, but it's hard. It's hard to welcome disciplining somebody. It's hard to welcome discipline. Anyway, Dayang lost his disciple. But he, didn't, he wanted the tradition of Soto Zen to go on. So he looked around for somebody who was already fairly mature because he didn't have time to, to train anybody. He had to find, actually, somebody who was already a master. And who did he find? He found Bushan, who had already been trained by Guishan and had become Guishan's successor. And he was carrying Guishan's severe, cold, uh, deep form of friendship that could train people and push them to the limit of what they can be friendly with and then teach him to be friendly with that too. He found Fushan, who was already a mature monk, although 40 years younger than him, still a master. And then they practiced together. 
And he said, I would like you to become my successor in this school. And Fusan said, I'm already the successor in another school. I, can't, I don't want to be successors in two schools. He said, would you please sort of just be my surrogate, be a surrogate parent for me, for my next generation. Would you please receive this lineage, this family tradition, and take care of it until you can find a successor? And he said, okay. And he received the teachings and became a successor. And then he looked around for a long time, and he, he found a successor for his first teacher's lineage. And he found another successor for the other school. So when we chant our lineage, we go, Taiyo Kyogen Daiyosho, Tosu Gisei Daiyosho. Fushan found Tosu Gisei. But Fushan's not in our lineage. This person I'm telling you a story about, huh? What? I said, huh. Ha, yeah, ha. Huh. It's just amazing. To me, our lineage, in a way, it, in a way, it didn't stop. It went from this person to this person to this person. But the person in the middle didn't want to be in the lineage. He, wanted, he wanted, didn't want to have two lineages. But he stood in the lineage and sort of held the previous generation until he could find the next generation. And then he brought the, the next generation through him to the previous generation and stepped back. And we don't say his name. But that, he's the savior of this school. And what kind of a person is the savior of our school? What kind of a story is the story of saving our school? This kind of story. Isn't it amazing? Huh? Yeah. I want to go back just a couple steps. It sounds to me, in the way that you're telling the story, as if the student is completely welcoming the teacher, even when he disobeys and opens the storehouse and takes the noodles. And he asks to be disciplined. Yeah. Like he knows he's going to take the consequences. I see it today. Thank you. <laughs> So not that that increased, but Re yeah, really, that really that's what's going on all the time. And maybe when he went to the storehouse, he said, this is my friendship to my teacher, is to steal this for him and for the Sangha. Maybe that was right. And so when the teacher came back, if he, if he had had a chance, he would have said, oh, welcome back, teacher. I stole, the, I stole the wheat, by the way. Really, that's what it's about, is that he was doing something for the teacher to push him to the point where he, would dem where he could demonstrate, I can welcome anything. Please keep giving me opportunities to welcome anything. I'm, I'm up for that, because I'm going to save Soto Zen. I need a, I, I need a lot of training. I, I also feel some sense that, so he's in a situation, the teacher has the rules, the noodles are in the storehouse, the door is locked. He knows that's the reality. He welcomes that reality, and all of us are hungry. And 
he welcomes the opportunity to feed the monks. Even I mean, that there's welcoming in the disobedience itself, or in the generosity, because he's he's fully accepting that that's the situation, and that he will take. The yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, maybe he wasn't that way. And maybe he wasn't, but I like him that way. Yeah, <laughs> really, really, he was that way. Really, the teacher was. <laughs> really, the teacher was making the food so frugal so that the Tenzo... <laughs> so someone would have to do that. <laughs> so the Tenzo would do that so he could then do what he did. Yeah. Really, the whole story is perfect. And people's various people's understanding of what was going on varies. But in the later part of the story, in the perceptible world, in the streets of the city, Fushan was welcoming it. And he's the person who, in addition to his other duties of taking care of one school, could take on another school. But the funny thing is, is that he's not in our lineage. When we, chant, we don't mention his name. But if you look at the list, actually the histories, you find out that actually Tosugise was the disciple of Fushan, not Taiyo Kyogen. Taiyo Kyogen died three years before Tosugise was born. So this is a, another very, uh, to me, just amazing story of the kinds of friendship, the kinds of relationship that are necessary in order to keep Zazen going over the centuries. Yeah. Yeah, I think Catherine kind of put that out, that, that Fushan, the way he welcomed a student was, oh, great. I've been waiting for somebody to give me a chance to deal with this kind of thing. Nobody, maybe there were other Tenzos, I don't know, who did the same thing, but then when he disciplined them, they ran off. You know, when he said, you know, pay back the monastery for, sell your bowls and robes and pay back the monastery, maybe the other one said, <laughs> you kidding? See you later, stupid. So he might have been waiting, just like I said, for, for a true disciple to stand up for the monks, you know, so that he could do what he can only do when somebody stands up to his nutritional policies. <laughs> no, he didn't. No. He, he could have. There's, there's stories like that, too. Like there's a story of the monastery where the monks come to the teacher and say, somebody, our bowls are disappearing. This is hard for us to understand these days where people throw bowls out on the street every day for the garbage people to take. But anyway, in those days, monks had a bowl and that was pretty important to them. And so anyway, somebody, they didn't say somebody's stealing the bowls, they said our bowls are disappearing. You know, maybe somebody's stealing them. So the teacher said, okay, let's have a little search. And they went around the monastery and they went and found one of the monk's rooms. And sure enough, there's a bunch of bowls in there. Because these bowls could be sold. And then you could get the money and get some really nice outfits. 
<laughs> anyway, they found the bulls in, in this monk's room. And the teacher said, invited all the other monks in the monastery to bring their bulls and put them in his room. So they filled his room with bulls. That's another response. Yes? Yeah. Um, the pain was growing for you in a way that was becoming, starting to become unbearable. No, it, it wasn't unbearable. It was unrelaxable. unrelaxable. I could still, it wasn't that bad. If it was unbearable, I would have, I think I would have said, help! But it was got to the point where I, when it first came on, I could relax with, I can relax with some pain. And then I can relax with a little bit more, like many of you can. You can get into hot bath. I can go into cold water sometimes, like 50 degree water. I can go in and relax. But when it's 40 degree water, then I probably can't relax. So it was, it was more like I, I couldn't relax. And I felt like, okay, and then if it got stronger, I probably really wouldn't be able to relax. So it wasn't unbearable yet. Yeah. <laughs> it went down to a level where it was basically, you know, not a, easy to relax with. My question is, is, is there always a nurse? What if there's not a nurse? What if you couldn't relax? Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. Someday there will not be a nurse. <laughs> And then what? I aspire to relax with when there's not a nurse. But I'm just saying, that's what I aspire to. I'm not saying, you can give me any pain right now and I can relax with it. But I aspire to that because big pains probably are going to come, bigger ones than I've ever been to relax with before. Probably going to come. Insults greater than the ones I've experienced before are probably going to come. So I'm training to get ready for the big tests. And I'm training with the tests I have now, trying to say, you know, welcome to the ones I have now, trying to relax with the ones I have now, which are not that big a deal. I'm not in that much pain right now. People are not that mean to me usually, but they're a little bit mean because they're my friends. And they, they naturally, in their friendship, you know, hurt me. Because since they're my friends, I'm open to them. And then they, you know, they do things to me which are uncomfortable. But I isn't that bad. Like my, my grandchildren are bigger now, but when they were a little bit smaller, I was visiting them one time, and they came over to me, and they started playing with my mouth. And then they started putting their hand into my mouth. <laughs> Have you heard that story before, Catherine? I have. Yeah. But I don't remember what comes next. <laughs> so they put their hands in my mouth, and their hands, their hands tasted really dirty. <laughs> and I said, you can put your hands in my mouth, but you need to wash them. So they said, OK. And they ran off and washed their hands and came back and put them in again. <laughs> and I said, you didn't wash them enough. 
do it again. And they ran off and did it again. They came back and put them in, and they were clean enough. And then they running their, moving their hands around in my mouth. Friends do that to each other. But you can also say, wash them. You know, take a bath. Brush your teeth. Not so hard. Harder. You know, you can, I'm training so that I will be able to meet whatever happens with, thank you very much. Because some big ones are coming. What I, I want to be able to say thank you very much to Alzheimer's if it comes to me. It's certainly going to come to some of my friends. And then my friends are going to talk to me in a certain way when they have it. They already are. I want to welcome their Alzheimer's. And if I get it, I want a practice that can welcome it. If I get cancer, if I have a heart attack, I want to say welcome. And I had a heart attack about uh, 14 years ago, 15 years ago. I had a heart attack. And I must say, it wasn't that bad a heart attack, as you can see. <laughs> it wasn't a real bad one. And I, I was very happy, not that exactly having a heart attack, but I was very happy that I did relax with it. And I did say welcome. I thought, hey, this is cool. I thought a heart attack might come, and here it is, and I can say welcome to it. And I was really happy. And when I went off to have the procedure, I waved bye to my friends, you know, because the procedure had a risk factor. I and I said, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful life with you. And I really felt full of joy and gratitude for my life and welcoming of but again, it wasn't a real hard, it wasn't a real big one, so, but a big one is probably coming. I'm probably going to get a big one. And it might not be so comfy. It might kill me, but before it kills me, I will have maybe some chances to say, I've been waiting for you, friend. I've been waiting for you. Welcome. I love you. Thank you. That's what I'm aspiring to. And I'm, with what I can do with now, which isn't so challenging, I do it. And sometimes, even when it's not so challenging, I sometimes forget. But then I say, I'm sorry. When the little things happen and I miss my chance, I say, I'm sorry. And about a year after the heart attack, I was riding a bicycle in the wonderful city of Houston. And some cars, some trucks were like pushing me off the road. And I turned off and I fell and hit my hip on cement. And I felt like a baseball bat hit right on my greater trochanter. And I did not say welcome. I said, S H I T. <laughs> And then I said, relax. And so I missed a beat. And I do sometimes miss beats when people surprise me with a baseball bat in the hip, an insult in the ear, dirty hands in my mouth. I sometimes miss a beat, but I don't always miss a beat. But those little, girl, little kids, 
I didn't miss a beat. I was okay with them putting their hands in, and I tasted it, and I said, wash the hands. I, was, I, I welcomed them, and I also welcomed them to take their hands out and wash them. And if they w refused to wash them, I probably would have taken their little wrists and taken them out of my mouth in a very loving way. I think I would have been, but that's not that hard. How about when somebody puts something really bad in your mouth, really bad in your heart, really bad in your mind? You've got to practice now, so when that happens, you can say welcome, and you can go like this. Because something really hard is going to come, so train with what you got now, and there's a possibility that you'll be able to do that, and that will be really great because other people want somebody to show them how to do that. And between now and then, you can still show people somewhat on what little things you're working on, or, or medium-sized things. But uh, you know, all of us have some difficulty now, and we're, if we keep living, we're going to have bigger ones than, we've, than right now. So big that we might not even be able to crawl up the stairs to the Zen Center. So then we'll have to practice on this, you know, at the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> That's what I aspire to. I came to learn how to welcome whatever. And the stories of the people who could do that, I, when I saw those stories, I said, I want to learn that. And then I found out, well, they have a training program. How nice. That these people weren't just lucky. They trained. And they trained with good friends who, you know, did things to them where they could, like, say, well, that's too much for me, or that's just right, or, you know, give me a break, or, okay, wash your hands. Thank you very much. Okay? Easy to say, hard to do. So that's uh, some talk about Zen practice of friendship. I, uh, I really appreciate your friendship to these discussions about friendship. I pray that we all continue to develop the Buddha way, which is good friendship. And um, I also thought I might mention that I think more than 30, oh, around 30 years ago, I remember Thich Nhat Hanh came to Zen Center a number of times, and he would often ask people to sing. And he had sometimes asked me to sing. And I remember I sang, maybe once or twice I sang upon his request. And I think I sang Old Man River and uh, Summertime by one of your New York locals, right? And uh, Summertime, uh, Old Man River might have been written by a New Yorker too. Anyway, I sang those songs. And then around that time, Tia said to me, why don't we sing? And I said, we do sing. She said, what do you mean? I said, kanji, zaibo, zatsugyojin, hanya, She said, no, but I mean, you know, like, with a melody. And I said, okay, I'll start singing. So on her 
invitation. I started singing um, uh, uh, usually towards the end of my Dharma talks. Also, I hope it's okay with her for me to tell you the password for her Wi-Fi. <laughs> but I, I'm just going to tell you the, the, the word. I'm not going to tell you the number. It starts out, sing. So, sing. No matter what happens, sing. Sing good friendship, no matter what happens. And I asked Catherine how she feels about my singing, and she said she, what did you say? She liked it except for one song that I won't mention. That she doesn't like as much. And she said, there's one I like quite a bit, and she told me about it, and I think this is the one. which you can see if it's apropos of what? Of zazen, of one finger, of friendship. <coughs> see? Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. I can do what I want. I'm in complete control. That's what I tell myself. I got a mind of my own. I'll be all right alone. Don't need anybody else. Gave myself a good talking to. No more being a fool for you. But then I see you and I remember how you make me want to surrender to Buddha way. <laughs> You're taking myself away, Buddha way. You're making me want to stay, Buddha way. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. Is that the one? Yeah. <laughs> May our intention equally... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.